best they could. But I think it was an unrealistic timeline given to them. Uh, most of his money was actually spent between 2009 and 2011. So uh, I think that is the crux of the problem. This happened primarily under the Obama administration. Um, do we see something different happening now? We do to, to, to some extent. The new administration program is uh, more focused on the conditions on the ground and not uh, a specific timeline. Uh, the new proposals in Afghanistan have incorporated actually a lot of recommendations that we have made on trying to get more trained, advise, and assist uh, units down to uh, other levels of the military. So we are seeing some changes, some positive changes, but it still is not going to be easy, and it still is not going to be done anytime soon. John Selfko is the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. There has been growing outrage and concern over the Trump administration's new policy of separating the families of migrants crossing the border illegally, mothers from children, fathers from babies. In hundreds of cases of migrant children crossing the border, kids have been taken into protective care, but officials in charge of those minors have lost track of where they are and who they're with and if they're safe. But a new report alleges America has been failing migrant children for a while now. This past week, the ACLU uncovered what it says was systematic abuse by U.S. Customs and Border Protection agents under the Obama administration. Claudia Flores is a University of Chicago law professor who helped draft the report, and she joins us now to talk about it. Welcome. Thank you. The abuse this report details took place from 2009 to 2014 under the Obama administration. Uh, the ACLU filed a Freedom of Information Act request. It received 30,000 internal documents. And you and your students reviewed a group of them. Can you tell me the findings? Sure. Uh, the documents were a combination of complaints filed by children and also documentation from the investigations conducted by CRCL, the Office of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. Essentially, what we found were patterns uh, of abuse as reflected in the complaints and what appeared to be ineffective efforts to resolve these complaints and to conduct investigations. Can you give me an example? Sure. Uh, there were a number of examples uh, of physical abuse, uh, children being punched in the head, um, kicked in the ribs, uh, stun guns used on them, patrol vehicles running over children, verbal abuse, um, denial of medical attention to pregnant minors, and some sexual abuse of uh, girls by uh, Border Patrol officers, uh, and ineffective um, sanitation in the cells and in the conditions that children were held. We should say that the CPB Customs and Border Protection has dismissed these allegations, saying they were patently baseless, that's a quote, and that many of the alleged incidents were investigated and dismissed. Yeah, so the difficult thing about uh, ineffective investigations is that all claims remain unsubstantiated, um, but a review of the documents really does demonstrate patterns of abuse. And so if you look at these allegations, they're incredibly detailed what the children are saying, and the complaints really demonstrated that uh, there was ineffective supervision and ineffective accountability. As I mentioned, these allegations are coming to light at a time when the Trump administration has a stated policy, a government policy of separating families at the border, uh, leaving kids and in some cases infants adrift in a foster system or under custody. How should we view the alleged abuse under the Obama administration in light of this new policy? 
I think there is definitely cause for concern that things appear to be getting worse. The rhetoric that is being used by the current administration, not only by President Trump, but Attorney General Jeff Sessions, that has used words like stampede and invade uh, when describing migrants' attempts to, to enter the country, it does seem like there is a situation that is getting worse. And I, this week, on Wednesday, there was even a report of a 20-year-old young woman who was shot by a Border Patrol officer. How are these new policies affecting migrant families, in your view? Well, the separation is making it obviously more difficult for migrant families, and frankly, the policies are incredibly ineffective. Uh, from the perspective of migrant children, migrant children have no idea what they're getting into. They don't know our complicated immigration policies. Uh, they're not going to be deterred uh, from trying to escape violent uh, societies and extreme poverty uh, by the policies that the current administration is instituting. That's Claudia Flores, a University of Chicago law professor who worked on a report for the ACLU. Thank you so much. Sure. On Tuesday, Starbucks will hold implicit bias training for more than 100,000 employees in response to the arrest of two black men at a store in Philadelphia. Since that arrest in April, more and more of these instances have been documented. Instances with mostly white people calling the police on people of color for insignificant reasons. I think that we really just can't know for sure 
how much greater the problem is. What we can know for sure is that we are having a national dialogue about it that is much more significant and increased in the number of participants in that dialogue uh, than I've certainly seen in my lifetime. We cannot keep up with the names or the footage itself of these instances. So I think that we have to be careful not to say the scale has increased. What is definitely increased is the amount of video evidence, uh, the amount of copy, meaning what journalists are writing around these issues, and even the organizing around trying to do something about it. Do you think the way we're seeing these incidences are changing, or is a certain part of the population having a conversation with itself? I mean, can you reach people on the other side who see things differently? I think you can, but I think it takes time. And I think that part of the problem is that we have a scale problem. Uh, I think that policing in general, it's got to begin to reflect on the fact that people who they've been policing under various forms of zero tolerance policy, the broken windows policies, has created tremendous mistrust and done tremendous harm in those communities. And as such, every police encounter between a white a caller and uh, an African-American or Latino suspect doesn't come with a blank slate. It comes with a history. It comes with a present. And police agencies have to uh, develop new training protocols that deliberately deal with that. I like to think that we could imagine a situation where these nuisance calls are quite distinctly handled from emergency phone calls, uh, that they might even be channeled to specialized units that have done a little more deeper dive into this problem and can come out and have a conversation with people if they're going to come out at all. Isn't the base of this, though, especially when we're talking about white people calling the police because they are suspicious of people of color or black people in their communities, isn't the base of this the fact that there is a sort of cultural conversation that says black people in white spaces means there's something criminal going on. Uh, you see it in films, you see it in all sorts of different messaging that, that white people often get. They're afraid when they see something different in spaces that they consider to be their own. Absolutely. What you're describing there is the longest story of, of America, which is a story that essentially said that this is a white Europeans country and everyone else has to play by our rules, including when your presence uh, is defined uh, on very limited terms. And when you step out of that, which was the story that we know so well in the Jim Crow period, then you're subject to all sorts of sanctions, including death by a lynch mob. And so what I'm trying to suggest here is that we've got to come up with some policies that raise the costs of bad behavior of treating people differently than you would want to be treated. And that is a problem of white fear being weaponized and as a problem of police officers being a little too prickly uh, when people are upset about having been judged harshly or inappropriately. Khalil Muhammad is a professor of history, race, and public policy at Harvard. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You're 
listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. For many, hiking into the humbling expanse of the Grand Canyon is a once-in-a-lifetime adventure. But for a hearty few, it's a commute. Stina Sieg of member station KGZZ reports from Phantom Ranch, the only lodging on the canyon floor. It doesn't matter what day it is, or even what year. Every evening at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, it's the same siren song. Good evening, people of Sioux Dinner. And it's the same speech from the steps of Phantom Ranch's rustic canteen, with its rock walls and giant windows. This time it's given by a bearded guy with a ponytail, P.J. O'Malley. So come on up here, give me the last name of your party, and we'll get this started. Since Phantom opened in 1922, many people have rotated through this role serving meals one night, cooking them another. The dozen or so employees working together below the rim at any given time also make beds, clean toilets, and sell lemonade. Only a certain type of person could probably work down here. Not everybody can handle this, I guess. <laughs> You've got to be open to whatever's thrown at you, says 27-year-old Katie Dockery. Dehydrated hikers, a credit card machine on the fritz, not to mention sharing a bunkhouse with your co-workers for weeks on end. Everybody's super cool and gets along. I mean, you have to get along down here because you live together and work together, so. Together in a spot that's at least seven miles of intense hiking from the outside world. They're not totally disconnected. There is a landline phone and sometimes spotty internet, but there's also a deep calmness away from traffic and big city distractions. 33-year-old Leanne. Yeah, now that was a segment of um, police brutality and prisoners' lives, actually human rights violations mattering. So that's going to be the conversation. And <clears throat> excuse me. And yes, we definitely, we definitely going to build on this. So further segments to come. Talk to you soon. And remember. Be kind to yourself and kind of be good to yourself and kind to others. Prison lives matter. One love.
what you get for that down low well yeah R. Kelly definitely has been on some bullshit anyways I don't know what he got himself into but he definitely fucking up um since I don't know the whole situation on that I'm not gonna comment as of yet but I will sooner or later but we have bigger fish to fry than R. Kelly debatable. Even though that's a very serious business to take care of, we will. Let's um, stay focused on the topic of the present. Polish brutality and the uh, injustice of the justice system and mass incarceration. We're basically talking about a genocidal project going down right now, today, here, right on everybody's nose. So, many people would like to pretend it's not happening, 
they would like to tell themselves that this is the way things are supposed to be. This is the way things have been. They didn't do it. All these wonderful excuses that they offer up. The taxes are still financing the operation. So the withholding of cooperation is the only thing that we have. <laughs> it's our only weapon. Without the workers, nothing works. So no matter how lofty the idea is, how grand, you know, you're going to need people to make them work, except for where automation has taken over. And that's what's coming. They want a fully automated system. They want to minimize the dependency on human ingenuity. And this is why the mass incarceration and genocide project, population control project. This is practice. What they're doing to the so-called black community is what they're looking to do to the world. So, don't be surprised. You've been told there's always one before destruction. Now, this message is for everybody. Black, white, red, yellow, green, doesn't even matter. If you're here sharing this planet, sharing this ecosystem, the land, the water, under the land, deep in the water, this planet, the vibe is raising. I'm sure everybody can feel it. Four moons are brighter. We all can see certain changes in our environments. So, take notes, make adjustments, raise your vibrations. We have a lot to deal with, and starting with our security. We need security in our families, in our communities, our neighborhoods, our schools. These are important issues that must be tended to. The food and water situation is crucial. They're saying that water in 3,000 counties, 3,000 counties, I didn't know there was 3,000 counties in America. I thought there was 2,800 counties in America. Wow. So, they're saying there's more pollution everywhere, just like in Flint. That is an epidemic, and no one's talking about it. Why? Yeah, well, we'll see about that. We'll see about that. All right. This is your man's Ross. And we're here. Prison Lives Matter. Thank you for your support. Um, the website will be online as soon as we're ready to, to um, 
to launch. It won't be long. Thank you for your support and welcome to welcome to the struggle. The lunar continua. The struggle continues. Until we're all free, none of us are free. Really. The system is still in effect. Take care of yourself. Take care of each other. One love. Oh, you
She's loved by me. She's my sweetie. Um, happy birthday, baby. So, today, I'm going to take off for the rest of the day and go chill with my queen. You all do your thing and um, be blessed. Be good to yourself and kind to others. One love.
itself up. There is hope yet. But, um, there's much to be discussed. So we're going to do a segment on hip-hop and its role in, in the present and the current events and things to happen, things to come. So what are your thoughts? What is hip-hop's role in the struggle as you see it. Leave me a message and I'll get at me.
Yeah, we is definitely in the zone. Welcome back to another episode of Prisoners Lives Matter. I'm your host, Roz Ba, and I'm here to challenge everyone today to think, to ask themselves a few questions. Um, the first question we need to ask is, what is wrong with the Department of Corrections? What is the problem? We definitely need a good grasp on the situation before we go deciding to make change and find solutions. There were seven lives lost on April 15th. That's not the first time violence has broken out in SEDC. Why? Why is this happening again and again? Well, obviously it's because of the administration. That's the, the obvious. That's the obvious. It's the system that's been designed. This is not by accident. This is by design. The way they have the conditions set up, the prison set up, the conditions are horrendous. Every level you can go to, it's bad. Starting from the food to the shelter, to the education. Terrible. The clothing, everything, none of this makes a good situation. It's a bad situation when you take individuals away from their loved ones, community, and put them in a hostile environment where they have no nutrition, no protection, and they're, they're violated mentally by the system that's supposed to be correcting problems. So, therefore, we have an issue with the department being named the Department of Correction when it's really more like corruption. So, what I want to do is to invite everyone who has an idea or a complaint that they would like to lodge against the system that we might get a big picture, get a broad, a full picture of the problem. So, I invite anyone to leave a message, to send a text, to go to Prisoner Lives Matter International, Prisoner Lives, Prisoner Lives Matter Movement International on Facebook and leave your, your complaint, your idea, your suggestion, your comment there. All right. I, um, thank you for your time and hope everyone's having a great day. This is the sixth week. No, this is the seventh week that SEDC has been locked down. That would be 47 days come tomorrow, actually. Today is the 46th day. So 47 days that they've been locked down in SEDC due to the violent eruption that happened at Lee County. All level twos and level threes are supposed to be still locked down. That's what I've heard. I'm not sure the accuracy of that report, but I will be looking into it. All right. Um, to those who are locked in, our hearts are with you. We stand with you. You're not alone. Know that your lives matter and that we care. So those who have gotten out and forgot where they came from, shame on you. Remember the struggle. Get back in it. We're in it to win it. Let's all unite and fight. Kujichagalia, self-determination. The struggle continues. One love.